I've been working on a few different messages lately. I'm always working on several messages. Uh, Eli came to my office about a week and a half ago, and I think it was about five days ago. And he saw me working, and he was like, how long have you been working on that message, Pop-Pop? And I go, it depends what part. I go, that part right there, and I scroll down. I go, I worked on that part years ago. It's just funny. It's waiting this message right here. And uh, that's how that happens sometimes, and, and other parts are fresh, and sometimes everything's new from a new study, and sometimes uh, there's things I've just been working on for years. Uh, in fact, I've been working on something most of the day that I'm not preaching today, even though I worked a lot on this today and worked on this yesterday as well. And uh, the name of this message is, Was Jesus' Death on the Cross Plan B? Was Jesus' death on the cross plan B? I'm already seeing some of you Bible scholars out there shaking your head, smiling, no way. Uh, but some think so, you know. Uh, and to me, there's, you know, two extremes. There's just, you know, exhaustive, you know, divine determinism, EDD we call it. Uh, exhaustive divine determinism where everything's just determined. You know, you have, don't really have a genuine choice in what you do. And we're kind of all like robots or mindless automatons, yet we're still blamed for some reason. <laughs> uh, and the other extreme uh, is that, you know, God kind of makes it up as he goes. I mean, the far extreme would be deism, right? But that wouldn't even be considered Christianity. But there's extremes which I still believe fall, are sub-orthodox for sure, uh, and border on heretical, is, you know, and I'll let God sort that out, but where God is kind of just figuring out things as they go on and, you know, discovering a bunch of new things. And I don't see that in Scripture personally. Uh, and then some even go to the point where it's like, well, what happened on the cross, that was basically plan B, okay? They still believe Jesus died for us and he paid for our sins and so forth. Many of that teach that, but it's a, it's a weak view of God. And I was reading the book, and this is what kind of made me think, you know what, I'm going to deal with this. Uh, a book, uh, Leslie D. Weatherhead, over a million copies sold, right? And I don't recommend the book because even though he says some really good things, it's called The Will of God. And uh, even though he makes some great points in the book, over a million sold, a lot of people have been blessed by his dealing with the will of God to a degree. Uh, I don't agree with his view of the will of God. I believe it's too uh, weak. Uh, and, but I was, when I was going through this book, listen to this, just, this is, okay, he's dealing with three different aspects of God's will, or different wills within God, the intentional will of God, number one, number two, the circumstantial will of God, that means where God has to adjust to a circumstance, and number three, the ultimate will of God, the ultimate will of God, and this was written, you know, not long after World War II, and so forth, and he was trying to explain suffering and what have you, and it became a classic in many people's eyes. Uh, and I was, as I was perusing it, I was like, shocked. Uh, was it God's intention, he says, from the beginning, that Jesus should go to the cross? Mm, what do you think the biblical answer is? We got a bunch of yeses. Praise the Lord. Was it God's intention from the beginning that Jesus should go to the cross? He goes, I think the answer to that question must be no. I don't think Jesus thought that at the beginning of his ministry, he came with the intention that men should follow him, not kill him. Uh, he says a little bit later after that, 
But when circumstances wrought by men's evil set up a dilemma that Christ was compelled either to die or to run away, then he chose circumstances that uh, the cross was the will of God, but only in those circumstances which were themselves the fruit of evil. Now, he's trying to stay away from a very deterministic view of God, but to me, he isn't seeing uh, the providence of God and that God uses, as we believe, even the evil choices of men to praise him, amen, and to bring forth his ultimate plan of redemption and to show forth his incredible grace. Uh, a little bit later, he says, uh, he goes, it was not the intentional will of God, surely, that Jesus should be crucified, but that he should be followed, okay? A little bit later, he says in the next page, those who say that the crucifixion was the will of God to remember that it was the will of evil men. So, and of course, the will of evil men factored into Christ's crucifixion for sure, amen? Because God was showing forth the evil of the human heart and entering into our suffering and what men meant for evil, as in the case, was the case with Joseph, God and meant for good. Amen? Amen? And praise God for that, that reality. So I want to look at this. And I want you to, we need to understand that from the very beginning, I don't believe anything catches God off guard. I believe a particle of dust and where it lands, each and every one he knows. I mean, I believe that's, you know. And again, when people say, how could he know such things? I believe he even knows the free will choices of those he makes. I can prove that from Scripture. And I won't go into all that, but we've seen counterfactual knowledge. That's knowledge of uh, hypothetical situations that would turn out differently if people made different decision, uh, decisions with Kayla. Remember, I use that example. I think that's a, just a beautiful example. And in case you're hearing this for the first time, I might as well just say this much at least, is that David was hiding from King Saul at Kayla. King Saul was bloodthirsty. He wanted to kill him because he didn't want David to become the next king. And the people of Calah just took hold of David and his men and they fed them, they nourished them, they were there for them as a refuge. So it seems. But King Saul and his forces, quite powerful, okay? King of Israel. David doesn't have the troops that he has. And of course, God could deliver him if God so chose to do this in this way. But David cries out to the Lord and says, asked if, if, if King Saul was going to show up. And then he asked, will the people of Kayla deliver me over to King Saul and his men. And the Lord answered affirmatively on both, yes, King Saul's coming, and yes, they will deliver you over to him. And you remember what happened? King David did what? He split. And guess what? What happened to King Saul? He never what? He never even showed up. He decided not to show up. Well, David's gone. So God knows how circumstances will be different in every event. I mean, he answers our prayers. Go through the scripture. God uses prayers. Amen? Amen? And things change when people pray. God is a powerful God. Okay, however, he knows not only what we will do, he doesn't know what we do because he predetermines and makes us do evil things, but he knows what people will do. And he, obviously, he's sovereign. He can, he can enter into any kind of situation he wants, Right? He can refrain, refrain a king from doing evil if he wants. Amen. And he can set a king up who he knows will do evil to show forth his glory. We have a very, very high view of God's sovereignty. However, he's never responsible for the evil that people do because God is without sin. Amen. However, knowing that, you don't want to, uh, you know, 
And by the way, the, 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 the view of God's sovereignty and providence that I'm espousing trumps the views of those who believe everything's absolutely determined and, you know, our Calvinistic brothers who believe that God can't know certain things and Calvin himself said that and others. Uh, if he doesn't determine them, we disagree with that. That's a weaker view of God. And certainly it trumps this view of God as well, that it was a shock to God. You know, not a shock, I should say, but, of course, you know, this view that, oh, we got to adjust now on the fly, you know, to the circumstances, because this was purely the will of evil men. And, well, God, he had a will to allow those wicked men. He could have stopped them, Amen. But even before the foundation of the world, God's plan was to allow his son to die at the hands of evil men for a greater purpose. Amen. Amen. And by the way, when we're talking about the problem of suffering, I mentioned to you recently that God has suffered more than anybody. Amen. Amen. God became a man and entered into our suffering. That's why he can sympathize with our trials and our temptations. He didn't just take a few years of suffering or even a thousand years of suffering. He suffered as the infinite God, the, 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 the wrath of God for every single sin that everybody committed. And because he's an infinite God, he suffered in an infinite way to whereby his death was sufficient payment, is sufficient payment for every sinner. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, Leslie D. Weather, Weatherhead, I'm sure he was a sincere guy. I don't doubt that. And he meant good, but... I, uh, that is not, that's sub-Christian teaching, sub-biblical, that idea. Uh, I think it's imperative that we understand who God is, both in his power and in his character. And when you understand that God is love, 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16, amen? And when you understand that God is indeed all-powerful and all-knowing, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely wise, man, he is an easy God to trust, Amen? When you recognize who he is, or at least he ought to be for you, it's only our sinfulness and our desire to be our own gods that keeps us from trusting him. But this love and this power of God, I tried to explain recently that Allah does not have, is not omnibenevolent, amen? Allah doesn't even have a son, had no, can't have a son, okay? according to Islam, and he certainly isn't love because before he created anything, he was just one singular what? Person, right? We talked about that. But God is love and he's Trinitarian. But I want to support that now and give you a little more insight onto that, which is kind of interesting. Somebody, I was talking to uh, someone recently in one of our home church or our, our churches in one of these other states, and they were like, I can't believe it. You know, me, my husband and I were looking at each other like, I can't believe He's talking about this because somebody else they were talking to was asking all the questions that I was answering and they were sure that person was going to think that they had talked to me before I gave my message. And uh, <laughs> I love when that happens. It happens almost every Sunday, it seems like. It's really bad when it's a husband and wife situation, you know. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen every Sunday, but it happens quite often. I hear about it a lot. So I wonder how many, maybe it does happen every Sunday. But uh, and they said it was just great because it was perfect for the person. The person wasn't doubting God's goodness and stuff. They were just wondering how it all worked together. And, uh, but I want to point out, and one of the things I point out is God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Three persons, one God, co-equal before creation. 
There's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in, in the beginning, there was you know, the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Amen? Amen. And even before you know, God you know, says, let there be light, you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the water. Amen? Amen? In Genesis, the first few verses. And God says, let us make man in our image. And we know that the Father created all things. And John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the Word who is God became flesh. And it says, through the Word, all things were made. Amen? So everything was made by the Father, by the Son, and the Scriptures say over and over again in the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, and elsewhere, that he sent forth his Spirit and they are created. So the whole triune Godhead is involved in creation. But guess what? There's, there's love in the triune Godhead before creation. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. This is right before he goes to the cross. Father, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory, now listen to this. The glory you have given me because you what? Loved me before the creation of the world. I love that, man. The Father loved Jesus before what? The creation of the world. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. 1 John 4, 16. And it says in 1 John 4, you know how we know he's love? The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Then in verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent, God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Amen? We know God's love. And we know his love for us because he sent his son. Amen? We don't have to wonder if he sent his son for us and think, oh, I hope he sent, I hope he, oh, I don't know. We know because Jesus said, for God to so love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, whoever, of the whole world, but have eternal life. So we can rejoice in that. And that's why in 1 John 5, 12, he says, he that has the son has the life. He that does not have the son does not have the life. And these things are written that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. A, a soteriological view that can't give people assurance and can't, where people can't know if Jesus died for them or not, can't really know if God loves them in a salvific way and has to wonder if God, Jesus died for them, can't offer biblical assurance. Biblical assurance is that you can know that you have eternal life. You don't have to wonder if Jesus died for you or not. You don't have to wonder if he loves you or not. You don't have to wonder if he gave himself for you or not. Amen? That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. And you also don't have to wonder if God's like on the fly making things up as they go. And guess what? The whole plan is in jeopardy because, oh, I got to adjust the circumstances, man. I wanted my son, son to just, everybody follow him. What is going on here? Oh, oh just let him die. <laughs> no, 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 a thousand times no. And I praise God when you have a high view of God's providence and his sovereignty and of his great love. It gives you incredible assurance, Amen. An incredible joy. I mean, there's crazy things going on in the world right now. A lot of people are facing job situations. I heard a statistic, and I hope the statistic's wrong. My wife was showing me this, something she saved in the news for me, and they were talking about uh, life insurance companies saying that, and anybody heard anything since last week when she showed it to me or five days ago? Life insurance companies have found that in, the quarter, in one quarter of last year, that death rate among, I don't think it was like 18 to 65 or so, 18 to 64, has increased like 40% in that quarter. 
and it wasn't all COVID related. And I like, I was like, hmm. She said that. Then I heard. It, I'm like, hmm. Is that accurate? Because that's crazy. And the the, the insurance they, they were talking about, you know, insurance companies follow this because that's their deal, right? That if it rose just ten percent, it would be like all-time high in the last hundred years. But forty percent? Okay, I'm not saying it was a quarter before that or a quarter after that. I don't know. But this crazy times we're living in. And we know <laughs> that our, our government doesn't have a plan. Well, we know they have a plan. Well, we know that the enemy has a plan, right? Yeah. We just know they don't have a plan that's in favor of us who follow Jesus. Amen? And a lot of those don't even know what the plan is, but others do know what's going on. They're pretty nefarious, uh, whether it's in government or technology, or, you know, entertainment industry and, and so forth. But praise God, God is love. And there was love between the triune God, with the, within the triune Godhead from, you know, before of creation. And then we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, uh, love is patient. That means God is patient because God is what? God is love. Love is kind. That means God is kind because he's love and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Wow. God is love. Aren't you glad that God's love, and because he is love, he's other-orientated? Jesus says it's more blessed. Jesus said, God of the flesh, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Amen? And that's God's, God's omnibenevolent. That's his nature. He's love. He's good. And that's a huge blessing to know that. Amen? Now, in a, we want to talk about this plan. Was this, did this all just, you know, sneak up on the Lord, you know? Or was this God's plan from the beginning that his son would die? I believe the scriptures are clear on this subject, and I thought this would be something, because it's, I love to look at the cross from a bunch of different angles, and I thought, you know, let's look at the cross and the backdrop of this accusation that Jesus was just adjusting now, and he, didn't, he came to just have a bunch of followers, but then he said, oh, I might as well just die. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Now we could actually start in Genesis chapter 1 because I believe the gospel is first portrayed by God in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1. But you ask people where the gospel is first presented, where it's first at least alluded to, most people say Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. And I definitely believe that that is definitely uh, a prophetic more than just an illusion, a prophetic declaration of what the coming Messiah will do. But I believe you could go back even to Genesis chapter 1, and when God created the universe, man, God created this world, created the earth, he was already showing forth his plan of redemption. I mean, that's how deep it goes. I don't know, man, on our podcast we did, maybe it was last year, or the year before probably, you know, we went through a ton of verses when we were going through typology of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, in chapter 1, I think we were there for five or six weeks or so. <laughs> and and, uh, and you know, then the whole, our format changed and everything instead of doing four shows a week. So we, we left off typology there. But I still bring, as you can tell, typology in a bit. But that's when God created everything, remember? And that, what was it? Remember those Hebrew words? It was what? Tohu wabohu, right? Formless void, formless and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep, right? And we talk about how that is a picture of, and then God's, the Holy Spirit's hovering over this situation, and then the God says, let there be light, amen? He speaks, amen? amen. 
and let there be light, and there's a transformation, and there's light, right? And then there's earth that comes out of the water. On the third day, life appears, right? A picture of death and then resurrection, Darkness over the face of the deep. And we, I believe that that is not an accident because the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 makes it really clear. He talks about our salvation experience and how light shined out of darkness when we were saved. Now the Holy Spirit came to live in us, amen, when we received the gospel. And right before that, he talks about how if our gospel is hid, chapter 4, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, it's because the God of this world, Satan, Blinds the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine unto them. Amen. But God said, let there be light. Bam, and our eyes were open. Amen. And then when we turn to Jesus, it says in chapter 3 that by the Holy Spirit we're transformed from glory to glory. And it talks about if those who turn to Jesus, the veil is lifted. And that's the order, by the way. The turning to Jesus and the veil, God, God uh, bringing salvation there. And he ties it into what happened in the first few verses of Genesis. It's so powerful. But what does that say? That says God just didn't know about it, but God made the cosmos, the world that we live in, which was shrouded in darkness. He made it to be a picture of our redemption from the very beginning that would happen through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And even baptism in the water, out of the water, you know, like the early creation and new life. On the third day, just like it was on the third day that life appeared in Genesis, and each day is a picture of that creation story. Amen? And that seventh day, that day of rest, is a picture of our eternal rest in Christ, by the way. Hebrews chapter 4. And I got, I, we just go into all that. I'd love to, but no. Okay. But that's, it's just mind-blowing. But then you go to Genesis chapter 3.15, and this is where people uh, say, oh, here's the gospel. Yeah, it is. Adam, Eve rebel against God. They fall into just wickedness and, and, and sin and rebel against the Lord. And they die. They die spiritually. They're separated from God. They die physically because physical death sets in, although it'll be years before they actually turn back to dust. But they, they're physically, uh, the Holy Spirit left them. They died spiritually and physical death set in. But look at the promise God gives them. Verse 15, but I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's pronouncing judgment on the serpent. Satan used the serpent, and it's a, you know, a dull judgment here, talking about the spirit entity behind uh, the serpent that he used as well. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and what? Her seed. He will bruise you on the head. What's the seed of the woman going to do? Bruise Satan where? On the what? On the head. Okay. And you shall bruise him on his what? On the what? On the heel. Now I believe there's a double entendre there because I do believe, yeah, it's metaphorical in the sense that it's uh, speaking. Some would say, well, yeah, and almost everybody interprets it this way. He literally was, you know, when Jesus was bruised in the head or on the heel, you know, that was, a, that was his death. But it was just, it was the heel. Because you couldn't keep him down, amen? Because he's going to rise from the dead, amen? amen? And I agree with that. It's metaphorical language of a real event that was future. And when he crushes Satan's head, that's through his death on the cross, where Satan no longer has power over us, and eventually he's thrown by the authority of Jesus Christ into the lake of fire. However, I point out to you, and I won't spend long on this because we talked about it some time ago, but 
he was literally also bruised on the heel. Because I've pointed out to you that in forensic science, they're able to discover if a body was moved after it was laid down, right after it died, because the blood coagulates where? At the lowest extremity of the body, wherever it's laying, it creates bruising. So if someone murders somebody and shoots them through the window, and they fall down, and they say, man, I better move that body, you know? And they bring it to the woods and make it look like someone hung themselves. All of a sudden, they find bruising, and they found someone's choked up, and they find bruising where blood is coagulated. They say, nope, that person didn't die by hanging. That person died before that. They didn't die by hanging, and they get shot while they're hanging there. They got shot, and they got bruising. Well, guess where the lowest extremity against a, a surface took place when Jesus was on the cross? Where would that be? Heel. On his heel, quite literally. Um, by the way, why are you taking time to point this out? I, I think it's cool, number one. <laughs> but because you go way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it is deep. Amen? God's saying what he's going to do to deliver us from the power of the evil one. He's going to pay for our sins so the enemy doesn't have any hold over us. Because when Adam uh, partook of the forbidden fruit, because of that, he basically sold the race into sin and slavery to the powers of darkness. And sin brings judgment because God's a righteous God. Amen? So there's a huge problem that takes place there. Yet we know scripturally, based on the word of God, that this was God's plan from the beginning. In fact, uh, we read in the New Testament about how he was crucified, but it wasn't plan B. His hands and his feet were pierced. Amen? They divided his garments among them. Was that a shock? Or was that already written about? Uh, written, who wrote about that? Anybody know? Come on. David, amen. In Psalm chapter 22, amen. Talks about his hands and his feet being pierced and his, you know, gambling for his garments and so forth. 900 years before it took place. His hands and his feet being pierced, his garments being divided, which would take place by the Roman soldiers. And by the way, when that was written, the Jews, when they put you to death and executed you, they knew nothing of the cross. They would stone you to death. It's, that's just a blow mind. But God was letting us know now the Persians would invent the cross and the Romans would take it over and perfect it, you know? And they were executing people for a few years before Jesus came. And that's just remarkable. Now, we're told throughout the scriptures that the Messiah would suffer. And in Zechariah chapter 12, the first four or five verses, it talks about how those who mess with Israel in the end times, right before the Messiah comes back his second time, it talks about those who mess with Israel will be messing with like a burdensome stone that's very dangerous to mess with. And it's called, you know, Israel is called a pot of trembling. And right now in the Middle East, there's all these Muslim nations surrounding Israel and they want her destroyed, but they realize they got to be really careful because there's something that's called the Samson Project that they're afraid of, many of them. And that is that Israel just destroy all their neighbors around them, all the Muslim neighbors, because they say, hey, you try to pretend it's this person, that person. That way nobody says, let's just try to nuke her if they, have, if they get a hold of nukes. And that's alleged. Uh, 
you can read about the Samson project. It's alleged, uh, but there's some believe that the Israelis talk about it just to scare people off, that they wouldn't really do that. I do know, I know this though. It says in Zechariah 12 that <laughs> Israel is a pot of trembling. And if you mess with it like a burdensome stone, you'll be severely injured. But guess what? The nations surround Israel, try to wipe her out in the end. And guess what? Samson Project's not going to end up doing it. The Lord God's going to deliver them. And the Messiah that they cry out for will finally appear. But Jesus said after his first coming, or before he died on the cross, at his first coming, that you won't see me again until you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Because he was rejected. And that was also prophesied. Well, then in Zechariah chapter 12, let's turn there. Zechariah chapter 12. It's just a fascinating prophecy we have about the Lord. And uh, we read in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, when the Messiah comes. In the first few verses there, it talks about Jerusalem and everything I was just talking about. And then in verse 10, when he comes, I'll read a verse uh, 8 first. Let's get some context. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Zechariah 12.10 or 12.8. He'll defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the, uh, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Wow. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the what? The spirit of grace and of supplication. Praise God, man. They were trying to do it by the law. Now he's going to give them grace and supplication so that they will what? Look on me whom they what? Have pierced. And he's going to pour out his grace upon them so they'll be able to, I mean, it's going to be supernatural. We call this prevenient grace. So that they will be able to look upon him and see him whom they have what? Pierced. And they will mourn for him as one what? Mourns for an only son. Now isn't that interesting? It switches from they will look upon me whom they have pierced, right? Who's talking, Yahweh? That's heavy. And they'll mourn for him as one mourns for his only what? His only son. And they'll weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then it talks about in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadrimmon and the, in the plain of Megiddo. And that talks about these different families from these different tribes and so forth that will weep and they'll go and mourn. They'll be crying and so forth. And they're going to be praying. They're crying out to God for mercy and grace. And chapter 13, verse 1, a fountain of cleansing is open to them because when the Lord returns, they weren't raptured, Okay. They didn't know the Lord. When the Lord returns at his second coming, we'll be caught up to meet him in the air. Amen? Amen? And then he'll pour his wrath out upon the wicked, these nations that are surrounding Israel, the Armageddon. But he'll preserve a remnant. And there will be Jews who didn't take the mark of the beast and refused to, who are crying out to God. And then he'll reveal, here I am. And they'll see the one that they've pierced. And the world will mourn too. Revelation 1.7, Jesus says, behold, or John, I'm sorry, Revelation 1.7 says, behold, he comes with the clouds and every eye will see him and they also which pierced him. And all the kings of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. That wailing there, by the way, that's bringing together a couple different verses. That's bringing together the book of Daniel 
in that verse with Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 right there, right? So it accounts for those who pierced him and accounts for uh, the wicked as well that will wail because of God's judgment coming upon the earth. Really, really mind-blowing when you think about it. So all this is going on, a lot of heavy things right here. But they're weeping and they're mourning and they're freaking out. I can't believe this is the one we rejected. Because right now, I told you before, you don't even make a plus sign in Israel when you do math because it looks, you want, you're so against the cross. When you go to synagogue, you go through Isaiah, you skip Isaiah 53. I wonder why. Well, we know why. The name of Jesus instead of Yeshua is Yesu for many of them, and it's an acronym, which means may his name be blotted out forever. That's what they call Jesus. You know what? It'd be a, wouldn't it be really, a, wouldn't it be so cool if you could read what they were going to say, right? Right there? Wouldn't it be a trip if you could go to Zechariah 12 and you could say, wow, this is what they're going to say when they realize they just, that this was the Messiah that they rejected. Guess what? We do have that prayer. We know what they're going to say. That's how powerful God's foreknowledge is. What do you mean? I don't see in Zechariah 12. You read it in chapter 13 and well, no, but it's in Isaiah 53. Go to Isaiah 53. Verse 1, and this is after 52, where it talks about how he will be marred more than any man, the Messiah, when he comes. He'll be marred beyond any man because of what they'll do to him. And then in chapter 53, Isaiah writes, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. This is 700 years before Christ came and was crucified, guys. Okay? And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Verse 3, check it out. It says what's going what's to happen to him before it even takes place 700 years earlier. He was despised and forsaken of men. Did that happen? Yeah. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Check. Check all these things. They all happen. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we what? Did not esteem him. In Zechariah 12, 10, when they're weeping, they'll be like, wow, he was despised. We didn't esteem him. We didn't understand who he was. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore. Now they realize why he was pierced, amen, for them. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, we thought God was just getting rid of him at the cross. And afflicted, verse 5, but he was pierced. Remember, they're seeing the one that they've, they pierced. But he was pierced through for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. The chasing for our well-being, so we could get better, fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are what? Healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to what? Fall on him. Wow. I mean, this is their prayer. I mean, people are going to be seeing this and not even knowing it's, there, it's been recorded, you know, 700 years before it happened, right? Before Jesus came, guess what? 
2,500 plus years before they're actually praying the prayer because this is still future as far as their prayer. But he fulfilled the coming and he was already rejected by them. Each, uh, you know, all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Amen. Now some, have, some, some you know, Jews trying to get around this are saying like, wait, 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 wait. Oh, this can't be the Messiah. Well, why do you skip Isaiah 53 then? Uh, no, you know what? This is the Jews and what they're going to go through. Really? Wait. When he says all of us like sheep have gone astray, that's the Jews, right? And you can apply that to all humans in a way, right? We've all gone astray. And the Lord has laid the iniquities all on him. And you know how I know it's not the Jews? Because here when you read Isaiah, this person is without guile. In Isaiah chapter 1, it talks about Israel and their sins and how they're sick from head to toe. And it says a couple chapters after this, a few chapters after this, in chapter 59, is there not one righteous one that could stand in the gap? You know, can intercede for Israel? Not one, not even one. And that's when the Lord says, I will have to do it with my own strong arm. And here it begins with the arm of the Lord is revealed. It's his arm. It's his doing, amen. Verse 6, all of us like sheep. Isaiah is even including himself, right? And he, look at the woes after woes after woes in chapter 5 of Isaiah. Well, maybe Isaiah could do it. No, because we get to chapter 6 and he sees the seraphim in the, in the, in, in the heavenly uh, tabernacle praying holy, 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 or praising God. Holy. What does he say about himself? Woe is me. Nope, can't be Isaiah. <laughs> That's why he concludes himself. All of us like sheep have gone straight, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He didn't try to get out of it. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yep, it was by oppression. Huh. It wasn't a fair trial at all. And by judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was... Now check it out. As for his generation, when it happened, who considered, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That's death, folks. For, the tra for what? For, look, it, says, it spells it out here. For the what? Transgression of who? My people. That's Israel. He does it for Israel. Amen. He dies for Israel, to whom the stroke was due. Now, this is important, too, because it shows you that Jesus died in our place. Amen? amen. He died in the place of every, every, all of us like sheep of God astray. That's all of Israel. Amen? That the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. That's all of Israel. Everyone without exception Israel. He's talking about that went astray on him. And Paul lets us know, and the New Testament writers that he died for Jews and Gentiles, and that God's not partial, amen, amen. and salvation. Paul says, not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also the Greek, amen. Hallelujah. And in chapter two, the, uh, the very next chapter, that's 116 of Romans, and that's in 211, it says God's not partial. You know, he mentions Jews and Gentiles. He's not partial. There's no partiality with God. What a beautiful, wonderful God we have, amen. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. 
Remember, he borrowed Joseph of Arimathea's tomb for three days? Because he had done what? No violence. Nor was there what? Any deceit in his mouth. Wow, absolutely perfect. It is, now, the Bible says in James chapter 3, if you can control your tongue, you'll be absolutely perfect because then you control your whole body. Well, only Jesus ha, never made a mistake or a sin with his tongue. And he was sinless. Everybody else has committed sin. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to what? Crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as what? A guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, guess what? He's going to die. He's going to be cut off from the land of living. But guess what? He's going to rise again. Right? And we are the and Gentiles, the Jewish believers. They're his spiritual offspring. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that we are all, all, all of us who are putting our trust in Jesus are children of Abraham through faith. Amen? That doesn't mean you go around saying you're a Jew. You're not. Okay, you're a saved Gentile, amen? But you have been grafted into the olive tree, the covenant tree, amen? It's a beautiful truth. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. So he's gonna see what he's gonna do with his soul and then be satisfied in what he does on the cross for us, guys. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I love that. He'll bear their iniquities. Therefore I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty among the, uh, uh, with the strong, because he poured out himself to what? Death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Many there is not contrasted with all, but many is contrasted with few. Even in the New Testament where it says he gave himself a ransom for many. Even John Calvin, the namesake of Calvinism, says when it says he gave himself a ransom for many, it's not in contrast with all. It's in contrast with few. Okay? Because the scripture says he gave himself as a ransom for all in, Roman, or in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Now it's interesting because was Jesus' death plan B, guys? No. absolutely praise the lord it was not afterthought at all in fact even what what were joseph and mary told by the angel to name uh, what's his name to name jesus yeshua greek Jesus, english jesus joshua you could pronounce it there's no j's in uh Hebrew, there's, so it wouldn't be Joshua, it would be Yeshua, but it would be just like we say Jesus in, in the Hebrew. We would transliterate the name Jesus or Yeshua to Joshua, so that's correct, Jimmy, as far as the English transliteration. So think about it, though, for a second. Why did they tell, why was, you know, Joseph told to name him Jesus? Because why? God with us, but also because he will what? He will save his people from their sins. Right from the get-go, right? right? I mean, right when he's born, boom. Before he's born, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? The prophecies about the Messiah. It was all part of God's plan. And that should give you a lot of joy. That should give you a lot of peace to say, you know. Uh, go to John chapter 10. What did Jesus say about his death? Did he say, uh-oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. No. John chapter 10. Go ahead and pick it up at verse 14. Jesus is talking to 
Uh, well, it says a lot of wonderful things here. Verse 14, I am the what? The good shepherd, says Jesus, and I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I what? I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I believe, we believe he's talking about Gentiles there. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with what? One shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down what? My life so that I may what? Take it again. Now, this was really early in his ministry that he was already talking like this. Go back, go all the way back to John 3, guys. John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, telling Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Amen? He must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how do I get born again? Do I come out of my mother's womb again? Probably being facetious. And he tells him, how could he be born again? I mean, not be saved through the law? No. Jesus says in verse 14, cutting to the chase, we are anyway, for the sake of time, we're not going through in, in depth every passage, otherwise we'd have to well, spend a few, be able to get into a few passages, but we're going to jump around from Genesis to Revelation as we're doing. Verse 14, he says, as Moses lifted up what? The serpent in the wilderness, even so what? Must the Son of Man be lifted up. Did you notice the word must there? When I was a young pastor in the 1800s or whatever that was, I'm getting older, when I was a young pastor, I did a whole study on the word must, and I looked at all these different scriptures in the Gospels where Jesus talked about he, how he must be lifted up and how he said he had to die if we were to be saved. Son of man must, huh, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, so that whoever believes in him will what? Have eternal life. Amen. Not perish. Verse 16, the very next verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, says Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not what? Perish, Perish but have what? Amen. Eternal life, everlasting life. And praise God, that's the heart of God. Amen. John, or I should say 2 Peter 3, 9. God doesn't will that any, any, any would perish, but that what? All would come to repentance. That's his heart. In fact, uh, Verse 17, for God did not send his, the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, people aren't just judged because they break God's moral law, but people are going to be judged because they reject the salvation that God provides for them. And by the way, if Jesus didn't die for the world, he couldn't judge them for rejecting the salvation because he never would have died for them. So it wouldn't be something to be judging them for, but they're judged because they didn't believe on him and they could actually be saved. People are righteously judged. God, Jesus didn't have to die for anyone. He could have just damned everyone right away, amen? We would all get what we deserve, amen? But by his grace, he dies for sins. And those who reject him not only die because of breaking God's moral law and get their just desserts, but they compound their sin by rejecting the provision that God's made through his son on the cross. Go to John chapter 12, verse 23. So, did, is, was Jesus shocked? Was it plan B? Oh, they're going to catch me. No. no. John chapter 12, verse 23. 
By the way, this is everywhere. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come. This is not long before his crucifixion. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless what? A grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Remember, this was Lisa's favorite verse for a little while years ago. Still probably one of her favorites, but it's just beautiful. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. At where I am, uh, that where I'm sorry, where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now look at verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, what? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This was not plan B, amen? amen. Now, the enemy is going to ramp up the, pers- the, you know, the assaults against him, and he's going to cry out to God, you know, if possible, let this cup pass for me. But he knows the purpose of the Father. He said, but not my will, but what? Thine be done. Because he's going to suffer such anguish that we can't, it's incomprehensible anguish. And he went through that so we could have eternal life. And so we could have incomprehensible joy in him forever, Amen. What a Savior we have, man. Praise God. Go to Luke after the resurrection, Luke chapter 22. Right before John. And when you go to Luke chapter 22, I think it's just amazing because now there's a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, not, not, of the, not the apostles, because he had more than the, the apostles. And he had 12. One went astray. Judas betrayed him and then hung himself. But these are two other disciples, not even among the other 11. And they're on the road to Emmaus and they're like forlorn, like talking about what had just transpired and everything and how Jesus was crucified. And now look what happens in verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, because they're saying, don't you know about these things, you know, and so forth. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping the gun. I'm sorry, yeah, Luke 22. Did I tell you 22? Okay, good. Verse 14, 22, 14. It's just absolutely amazing. And on the road to Emmaus, I'm going too early. I know I'm going too early. Yep, I am. Okay. Luke 22. This is the Last Supper. This is the New Covenant. And what's he doing? Do you remember what he did at the Last Supper? We celebrate it just about every Sunday we can. I don't even know if we've missed a Sunday. We might have missed one on a church camping trip or something in 30 plus years. He broke bread and he took the cup out. And he was, he was celebrating the Passover with them the night before his crucifixion, before he was arrested. And what happens? Verse 14, we read, And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. They said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is what? Fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then look at verse 17, you guys. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom, until what? The kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, 
This is my body, which is what? Given to you. Given for you. Who's he giving it? Who's he saying it's given for? For you. Who's there? His apostles. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. Verse 20. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is a covenant, what? In my blood. Is he talking about a plan B here? <laughs> no. He's not running from anybody. He's like, oh, when he's running from them, he changed the plan. No, he's not running from anybody here, man. In fact, uh, he says in verse 21, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. <laughs> That's a trip. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But what? Woe to that man by whom he is what? Betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them might be the one who was going to do this thing. Can you imagine? Is it me? You know? And Judas was there. Satan had entered into him. In fact, he says, when you look at Luke 22, and you look at Matthew, and you look at Mark, and you put all the accounts together, he says all kinds of prophetic things of Judas. You know? He that has broken bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. That was prophesied in the book of Psalms. David said that about Ahithophel, his trusted counselor who betrayed him. It was a picture of David's, Jesus, son of David. David was a king. Jesus, the king of kings, son of David. And it happened to him. It was prophetic. It's all prophetic. It's all quite powerful. By the way, when he says that he's pouring out his blood for you, right? Is Judas there or not when he says that? Yeah. Told Jesus he was dying for him too. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus only died for a few people, okay? That's a doctrine called limited atonement. That limits the grace of God. We have a big view of God's grace, amen? Why would you want to teach limited anything that God has done and limit, limit it to those who God doesn't limit to? Well, it says he laid his life down for his sheep. Yeah, he did, amen? Paul says he gave himself for me. Was it just Paul? Paul could go around saying, hey, based on this verse, he just died for me. No, because it says he tasted death for everyone, amen? What a great big God we have. Even Judas... Even false prophets, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So it speaks of false prophets who deny him. They deny the one, he says, who bought them. Redeemed them is a Greek word. That's what it means there. Now it's interesting. Now go to Luke chapter 24. Now he's on the road to Emmaus, or some two of his disciples are. He joins them, and here's what we read in verse 24. Luke 24, verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and, 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 and found it just exactly as the women also had said. They're relating this to Jesus. But him they did not see. And then in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ha. Does he say, oh, you know, guys, uh, the Old Testament got it wrong and there's a plan B, we're setting it. No. This is all prophesied, it says in the Old Testament. Verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Amen? Verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning what? Himself where? In all the scriptures. He went through the whole Old Testament, man. He showed them just 
discuss these things and how this all prophesied my suffering and my resurrection. I'm looking forward to Resurrection Sunday. I've got a couple different messages I've been working on, but I'm excited about both of them, so I'm going to keep praying about it, you know, because of the resurrection in the Old Testament. It's glorious. Luke chapter, uh, something I've never taught before. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And this is when he, a little bit time, a time elapses, these two disciples from Emmaus, they join the other, the 11 apostles. They're sharing with them what Jesus had informed them about. And now they're all together and Jesus appears among them again. But also with the other 11, the 11 apostles. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be what? Fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Wow, what a Bible study that must have been. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you forth with the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then they go, and on the day of Pentecost, they're tearing 120 disciples and so forth, and they're crying out to God, praying, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. And by the way, his death, don't miss this. His death, there's all these pictures I'm just skipping over too that we get so much deeper in this. So I'll just say this. When he says, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right? Put it on the pole, right? People would look to the, the, the judgment that came upon that pole because it was serpents that were killing them because of their disobedience and rejection of God and, and, and his man Moses. And then they were dying and their lives were just ebbing away. And then God told Moses to put a, a, a bronze serpent on the pole. And guess what, man? That was a picture of God's judgment falling upon Jesus ultimately, amen? He took the judgment that we deserve. That was prophesied in the Old Testament, okay? 1,500 years before Jesus died on the cross. In the days of Moses, God had also, even prior to that, instituted the Passover lambs. Perfect lamb, male lamb, full grown. Put it to kill it, right? Bef all these plagues are coming by Egypt. The 10th one, put blood on the lentil and the doorposts, the doorpost lentil, right? And what's going to happen when the death angel passes over your house? Your deathborn will not, your, your firstborn will not be killed. Will not be executed. It's a picture of the cross. Picture of what Jesus would do. And it was on Passover day, evening, that Jesus died, I should say day, that he died for our sins. Now, I've read in history that Galileans celebrated Passover the day before the Jews in Jerusalem, which is interesting where you can see them celebrating it the night before, right? They were Galileans. And then him being crucified on the Passover that was celebrated in Jerusalem, quite Interesting. Now, did this, is this a shock that this happened? No, this is all prophesied. All, all the types, all the pictures. In fact, go to Acts chapter 2. Look at Peter's first sermon after the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. His sermon at Pentecost. Look at what Peter says. Does he say, hey, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus was trying to get big following. It didn't happen and circumstances changed and, and, and then he just died. So now we're just going to say, hey, let's go with plan B. No, that's not what happened. Look at verse 22. 
Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, verse 23, this man delivered over by the, the, check this out, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, right? You what? You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was God's predetermined plan before he made the world that he sent his son to die for us. Amen? And that he even used the wicked men. The Bible says God caused the wrath of man to praise him. Amen? God's the ultimate chess player. Amen? He can have millions of people, hundreds of millions, billions of people with free will. And he just moves all the pieces around. Says, you're going to make the choices, but if you're going to reject me, I'm the potter, you're the clay. Pharaoh, you're going to be like that? Mm, good, okay, I'm going to stick you right here. Ah, Judas, I know what you're going to choose to be. Too bad. I'm going to make you that one apostle, which I know what you're going to do when the circumstances come about. I'm going to use you to bring about the salvation and death for all humanity, including for you, Judas. In fact, he offered Judas a sop. And when Judas later went to kiss him, he's like, friend, Betray the Son of Man with a kiss. Judas was guilty. He's a son of perdition. Well, Peter will later say in 1 Peter 1, you could go there if you, if you can, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Wow. Verse it wasn't by those things, no, verse 16, verse 19, but with precious blood. We were redeemed, bought, that means bought, redeemed, with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Now look at verse 20. For he was what? Look at what verse 20 says, very important. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it says in the NIV that in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. The English Standard Version says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The NLT translation says this truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. The NASB says, from long ages past. It's always God's plan. I love Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. We've got just a few more now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. You want to be blessed? Come to Jesus. The blessings are in Christ. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him. You know, you weren't chosen outside of Jesus. You weren't elected apart from Jesus. Election is Christocentric. He's the elect one. In the Old Testament, he's called the elect one. In the New Testament, he's called the elect one. He's the chosen one. He's the chosen son. And in Israel... You could be part of the elect by being part of the Israeli nation. Now, just because you were in, in Israel didn't mean you were part of the elect. 
if you, because you can be cut off too if you rebelled against God's law, right? But if you trusted the Lord and, and didn't trust in the law, you trusted his plan of salvation and the sacrifice that were being made and you were looking forward to Messiah, you were part of Israel. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Being a child of Abraham didn't save you. Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, amen? So we're not saved by being a physical descendant. You couldn't say, oh, God unconditionally chose me because he made me an Israelite and I had no choice in it. No, you had a choice to whether or not you wanted to keep the covenant or not, right? Now, none of them could keep the law, amen? And God has shut up everybody into condemnation, 11.32 of the book of Romans, that he might have mercy, it says, on all, amen? But to be part of Israel in good standing, you had to follow Yahweh and put your trust in him. And there were those among them that were his sheep that belonged to the Father who weren't trying to keep the law for their salvation but were trusting in Yahweh and the just shall live by faith. That comes from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about all kinds of folks in the Old Testament were saved by faith. Amen? And those were the sheep that the Father gave to the Son because they still belonged to him. They weren't cut off from the tree because they didn't seek it by works or in rebellion claim, hey, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus said of the sheep that belonged to the Father that the Father gave them to the Son. They were the ones that were trusting Messiah. But your election happens in, not now in Israel, our election happens in Jesus. Well, am I one of the elect? Put your trust in Jesus. Amen. If you're putting your trust in Jesus and you're in Christ, you're one of the elect. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. You have responsibility. How do, I, how do I make my call? You put your trust in Jesus. Salvation is not by election. Salvation is by grace through faith. Amen. You put your trust in Jesus, you are in Christ. Amen? When did God know that you'd put your faith in Christ? Was it plan B? No, it was plan A. Listen, listen to what it says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Listen to that, guys. It, he knew the plan was that Jesus would die for our sins. Amen? Well, what was the plan? Well, he made it known. Ephesians 1.9 says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention that he purposed in him. He makes known to us the mystery of his will. There are certain things that he are secret and there are certain things that aren't secret. Deuteronomy 29.29. But one thing he made clear is the mystery of his will. What is it? Verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Listen to this. It's beautiful. Also, we have ordained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. He works everything, all things, everything after the counsel of his will. The evil choices of people, like Judas, right? The choices of those who fear the Lord. He works it all together after the counsel of his will. Verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. If you have the NIV, it says, according to his plan. Well, what's his plan? Look, it's about those who hope in Christ. Verse 13, in him, in him, it's all about being in Jesus. And I think in him, in Christ, that terminology is used like 39 times throughout the book of Ephesians. It's all about Christ and being in him. In him, listen to this, you also after, you also after what? Listening to the message of truth, that's the gospel. The gospel of your salvation Having also what? Believed. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What's his plan? We're predestined according to his plan that whoever believes, right, would be chosen in him 
And it happened before the foundation of the world. He knows who will believe and who will not believe. It says him who he foreknew, knows, he, him he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And by the way, why is Paul emphasizing this? Because he's emphasizing, I don't have time to get into it, but in chapter 3, he emphasizes, he emphasizes that this mystery has been revealed through Paul the Apostle, even though it was written and the Old Testament's quoted over and over again to the degree of understanding. The apostles didn't fully understand it, did they? In fact, before he died on the cross, they didn't know what was going on. Only one person I see, and I could be wrong, but I only see one person that really understands that he's going to die. Because they're like, even when Jesus is told, tells Peter, right? He says, no, no, it's not going to let it happen, right? Get behind me, Satan, he says, right? But who was the person that knew he was going to die and was listening very carefully? Anybody remember? Amen, Jim. Mary of Bethany. When they're like complaining that he, she's, he spent all, she wasted all this perfume on Jesus' feet. What's she doing? He said, don't do that. She's doing this because she's doing this for my burial. Remember, she's the one that was at his feet listening when Martha was in, doing the dishes and stuff or cooking, right? Martha was upset. She's wanted to understand and when he said these things, she pondered them. Not that she understood them fully, but this was all part of the plan. And in Ephesians, he wants them to understand that God's plan was to bring Jews and Gentiles together as believers. He talks about that a lot in chapter 3. That was his plan. That's why predestination isn't emphasized to say you didn't have a choice in your salvation. That's not what it's talking about at all there. It's letting us know that God had a plan from before the world began to save people through the gospel. Amen? And that's not an afterthought. It's a divine, beautiful plan and that whoever would believe. Now you can reject that plan. In Luke 7.30, it says of the Jewish leaders that they set aside. They refused to be baptized by John, and they set aside. They set aside. It says they set aside God's purpose for them. Well, if you set aside God's purpose for your salvation, God's still sovereign because then he'll judge you, and you'll still fulfill his purpose, which is that those who reject him will then be rejected. Either way, he's in charge. Amen? He's ultimately in control. That's good stuff. Amen? God's word's powerful. Amen? It's powerful. I mean, I didn't get through my study, but I got through enough. Amen? We're going to go all the way to Revelation. That'll be for another time. But it's just all over the scripture. Amen? Was Jesus' death on the cross an afterthought? No. No. Now, there's people with plan A to get right with God. But plan A is never a good plan. And that's by being perfect before the Lord. Amen. It's not really a plan at all. It can't happen. Amen. God's plan A for you is that Jesus paid for your sins. Amen. He provided salvation for you. He rose from the dead. And the plan is that whoever believes him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Here's the decree. He that believes shall be what? Saved. He that does not believe will be what? Damned. You have a choice. Either way, you're going to fulfill one of those two decrees. Amen. But you have the choice. Can't blame it on God. So I encourage you to make sure you put your trust in Jesus. And I've gone through this study with you because, well, we're Christians and we're going to rejoice in our salvation 
forevermore, amen? And we should never grow tired of seeing what Jesus did for us, amen? And studying the scriptures. We should rejoice in this, in this reality because we're going to be rejoicing over this forever and ever, amen? And I'll just close by saying this. In Revelation chapter 5, John, the apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, is bawling like a baby. He's crying because there's a seven-sealed scroll which no one can open on earth or in heaven or under the earth. And he knows it has to be opened to execute God's judgments and to bring forth the ultimate redemption which has already been paid for on the cross by Christ, but to bring forth God's plan, right? To all of creation's groaning and it's like, it seems like it's a standstill. And he's told by the heavenly being, John, he's told, stop crying. For the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered or prevailed so as to open the scroll. Amen. And Jesus comes forth and takes the scroll from the hand of the Father. Amen. And it talks about, they sing a new song because he's redeemed people from every nation, every people, every tongue. Who's redeemed? Well, he died for everyone. But that Passover blood, if you killed a lamb in your backyard during the Exodus and you refused to put it up on your doorpost and your lentil, it would not avail for you. You had to apply it. And then the death angel would pass over. Amen. Even so, Jesus died for you, but you will not effectively appropriate the benefits of the provision made for you if you reject the blood of Christ that's been shed for you. Amen. You must apply it to your heart and put your trust in Jesus. Amen. Then when the wrath of God falls, ultimately, well, you'll be saved right now. You'll pass from death to life. And it says, but those who don't put their trust in Jesus, it says the wrath of God abides on them. Amen. But the Bible says, he that puts their trust in Jesus, they have passed from death to life and shall not come into condemnation. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Can we all please stand?